All right, so um, we are in the middle of series on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 to 7, those three chapters, and uh, we get started with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are all those pronouncements, those statements at the beginning of Matthew 5 that start out with blessed is or blessed are. All right, so uh, last couple weeks we looked at the first few. This morning we're going to look at Matthew 6 to 8, three of the Beatitudes, kind of the three in the middle. Um, And before we dive in here, I just want to say that I think we need to be careful, especially if you are familiar with um, the Bible, familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Um, There's danger in getting too comfortable with them being too familiar with them because we can tame them. They're not tame. Um, These are statements that ought to disturb and challenge us and arrest our attention and show us how great our need is for grace. So the Beatitudes are no friend to comfortable religiosity or to a selective moralism. Sometimes that's sadly what passes for Christianity, is just this selective moralism, you know? Certain pet sins or certain pet things, you know, we get that stuff, you know, in order, we look good on the outside. Beatitudes are no friend to that. Jesus doesn't want facade religion, okay? Just where we kind of look good on the outside, He wants to change us from the inside out. So he doesn't want just this nominal, you know, add Jesus like a garnish to your life. No lukewarm churchianity. He is after true heart religion. So later on in Matthew, he said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So if our religion is just lip service without a new heart, a changed heart, then it's just, it's worthless. It's in vain. We don't want that. You don't want that, do you? I don't want that. So we need to pay attention. We need to listen because Jesus wants to change us in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount from the inside out. But listen, also, (laughs) this message, these pronouncements are not for like spiritual superheroes or spiritual superstars. This is not like for the Navy SEALs of Christianity. This is normal, supernatural Christianity. Okay? So these are not natural dispositions or personality traits. They're supernatural, and Jesus wants to give us that grace. So as one pastor, um, Ray Ortland, likes to say, anyone can get in on this. So even though it's sobering, it's encouraging. Okay? So all you need to know is how needy you are. That's where the sermon begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. So these characteristics in the Beatitudes can be produced by the Spirit of God through the Word and grace of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so a little bit of orientation here as we head in. Um, Three points this morning, one for each of the three Beatitudes. Um, 
They'll be on the, the screen here behind me, or you can follow along. There's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful. So first one, verse 6. Um, the point is healthy appetite and spiritual health. Let's look at verse 6 here. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what is righteousness? Could you define that? Again, I think it's easy for us to be familiar with these terms, Christian jargon, but we maybe don't know what they are. If we stop and think about it, can I define righteousness? Um, In fact, righteousness could also have some negative connotations to some of us. Righteousness might be off-putting or ugly. And if so, we're hardly going to be hungry for it, right? So we can first say what it's not. The righteousness that Jesus is talking about here is not self-righteousness. It's not externalism, legalism. I mean, have you experienced any of this? You know, kind of moral high ground, superiority complex Christianity that looks down its nose at you? You're going to hunger and thirst for that? No. It's not nitpicky uptightness. That's not what righteousness is. So, if, again, if we don't know what it is, or if it has these ne- unnecessary negative connotations, we're certainly not going to hunger and thirst for it. Or it could be that if we don't know what it is, we could actually hunger and thirst for it, but not know that we are. And we could kind of beat ourselves up unnecessarily because we're not as righteous as we should be, or something like that. So we need to understand what it is. So if we keep reading, we quickly get a flood of clues to what this is. Okay, Matthew 5.20. So flip the page. If you're using the Pew Bible there, it's on page 8.10. And Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, like that could be a little intimidating. But what was the nature of the Pharisees' righteousness? Well, flip way ahead to Matthew 23, where Jesus is confronting these Pharisees in their hypocrisy. Matthew 23, 25 says, You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Or down in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So you see, Jesus is after heart religion, not external, you know, conformity to some set of rules. So he says what he says in verse five in chapter five, verse twenty, about our righteousness needing to exceed that of the the scribes and Pharisees. And then he unpacks what that means. So in in five twenty one, you've heard that it was said, You shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Okay? So what does righteousness looks li- look like? It looks like not just external compliance to the law. Well, I haven't killed anybody yet. That's good. It's do you have that kind of hateful, vengeful, murderous impulse internally? That's wrong. It's not right. So Jesus wants to change this from the inside out. Okay? So he goes on and unpacks a lot of what it looks like to be righteous from the inside out. So hungering and thirsting for righteousness sounds like I long to embody and to live out God's will. His wisdom in my life from the inside out. So I don't want to have a murderous heart of anger. I want to have a righteous heart of trust in the Lord and self-control. Or as he goes on, he talks about not just externally, you don't commit adultery, but internally, you're not giving way to lust. So I don't want to have an adulterous heart of lust. I want to have a loving heart of honor. Not objectifying, but honoring others and fidelity. Or I don't want to be retaliatory and quick to get even. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be meek. I want to love my enemies even. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount is going to go on to unpack what this righteousness looks like. The living out of God's will and character. What's right and not wrong. Sam Storm says it like this. A couple um, helpful descriptions of what Jesus is getting at here. Um, One by Sam Storms and one by John Stott. Jesus has in mind zeal for purity in conduct, in thought, in language, in action, in our feelings. He is talking about the person who yearns. Remember, it's hunger and thirst, so zeal for purity. Yearning for the unholy to become holy, for the whole of life to be a reflection of the righteousness of God himself. So it's internal. It starts with us primarily in our own heart and life, but then also it has relational societal implications as well. So John Stott goes on to say this, biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social Righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. So this is nothing new. The prophets spoke of this over and over again. So Isaiah 58, it'll be up here. You don't have to turn there, but just look at this. Jesus said, is this not the fast? I'm sorry, um, God said to his people in Isaiah, is not this the fast that I choose? So I don't want you to, you know, fast from food and think that you're, you're, you know, winning all these points with me when all the while you're doing all this injustice in your workplace and with your neighbors and, you know, oppressing the poor, etc., etc. Here's the fast I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, 
to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from, from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is what righteousness looks like. It's internal. That's where it begins. But then it works its way out into all of our relationships and the needs that we run into. So, over and over again, it's not just Jesus. It started in the Old Testament with these prophets. God says, I don't want your religious show if your heart is not committed to these things. So look at Amos chapter 5. It's up on the screen. Sober words from God. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice, righteousness, roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So that's what God intends to do. Like if we come in here on Sunday and we can sing till we're blue in the face, but if we go out from here and we are just trampling righteousness underfoot, don't bother coming in and singing. It's just like God doesn't want to hear that. So, new hearts, new lives from the inside out. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, with hunger and thirst, this is what this hunger and thirst after righteousness is all about. He cries, Lord, end the reign of sin. Lord, cast down idols. Lord, chase error from the earth. Lord, turn men from lust and avarice and cruelty and drunkenness. But here, start here. Start here in me. And then, through me, spread that. So listen, I think, I think it's easy to be hungry for spiritual experience. And man, when we meet with God, it's an experience, right? So we should want vital, like alive experience with God. But if we love the Hillsong spiritual experience, but it doesn't flesh out, in this kind of love to needy neighbor and righteousness like rubber meets the road, then it's empty. So the question is, what are you hungry for? What am I hungry for? Is our appetite for righteousness, has it been dulled? Are we filling up on other things? Do we hunger for other things? I mean, everybody's hungry for something. We all thirst for something. Hunger and thirst for sexual gratification or success or comfort or praise and recognition or belonging in the inner circle or just food or athletic glory or the perfect body. We may need to fast from 
certain things in order to increase our hunger for the right things, to sharpen our spiritual senses, to cleanse our palate, in a sense. So the Word of God helps us here. You know, 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. We need trained. We need our affections, our appetites, our desires trained and shaped by God's word so that they're in line with God's heart and his character. So hunger and thirst are satisfied with something specific, right? Food and drink. So this hunger is also satisfied with something specific. So you can love music. I love music, but you can't eat it. You know, I love sport, but it can't hydrate you. So similarly, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, nothing but righteousness will satisfy. So does this pronouncement, does it resonate like Do you recognize stuff is not right in me? Stuff is not right in me. (laughs) Like motives, moods, attitudes, words. My loves can be disordered. My desires, our fears, our passions, our actions, our use of time, our daydreams. Like change me, Lord. I am hungry and thirsty for you to make me right inside. Stuff isn't right in here. Change it. If that's you, congratulations. God has poured out his grace on you, and he's going to satisfy that. It's only going to come in bits and pieces. We're going to be frustrated with the rate of growth, and oftentimes it's like one step forward, two back. But he's going to satisfy that hunger. So we long to be right within our hearts and then what comes out, words and attitudes and actions. We long for there to be no more pride and lust and envy and fear of man and people-pleasing and rage and bitterness and self-pity and coldness and indifference toward people. And we long for the world to be set right. Don't you long for that? No more injustice or exploitation or discrimination or abuse or manipulation or bullying or violence or rage or anger. No more pride or selfishness or greed or covetousness or grumbling or duplicity or spin or slander or gossip or lying or cheating or false promises. Anybody hungry for that to be like gone from the world? Well, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, congratulations. God's been so kind and gracious for us to long for those things. It's because he's at work in here. You will be satisfied. There is a day coming when Jesus is going to return and set the whole world to rights. And if you're with him, you're going to live with him in the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13. There's not going to be anything wrong. Everything's going to be right with the world forever. And we will be satisfied. 
So you see how a healthy appetite is so essential to our spiritual health and even to our ability to be salt and light and love anybody well in this world. So we've got to guard our appetite, brothers and sisters. We've got to pay attention to what we hunger and thirst for. We've got to feed the right appetite and starve the wrong hungers and thirsts. So despite what our connotations may be, um, or what we've maybe experienced in the church in the past, hunger and thirst for righteousness does not make you, shouldn't, self-righteous and uptight and elitist. Disciples of Jesus, citizens of his kingdom, are both those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and those who are merciful. Second one, the attitude we're going to look at. So in God's kingdom, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's that verse in James 2.13. But look at Matthew 5.7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So, so important that righteousness and mercy are held together as companions and friends in this kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom. They're not incompatible. And oftentimes, the Christians who are zealous for righteousness and justice are not particularly merciful. And oftentimes, the merciful people are not so concerned about righteousness. But in Jesus, these are friends. They're, they're just close companions. I mean, just think of Jesus. Think about his life. Think about how he walked through this, this world. He was perfectly righteous. There was nothing wrong about anything he said or did or anything internally. Perfectly righteous. And he was a magnet for messed up people who needed mercy. Like, What would happen in Wilmington if the church of Jesus Christ held these two things together and we were righteous, like from the inside out, and just overflowing with mercy? Those things were held together. Like magnets for people in need. (laughs) Do you think Wilmington needs a little bit more mercy? Where is it going to come from if it doesn't come from the church of Jesus? I mean, it's only in God, it's only in the gospel where righteousness and mercy can actually coexist without like sacrificing one or the other. I mean, this is the gospel. How in the world can God be righteous and merciful? How can he be just and pardon guilty criminals, spiritual criminals? That's all of us. He can't sweep our sin under the rug of the universe and still be righteous. You can't have a judge who just lets people off, you know, like, eh, bygones be God. No, there's like real laws that have been broken. This is, this is serious. Can't just sweep it up. So how can he be merciful and justice? Well, merciful and just only because of the gospel, only because of the cross. God perfectly satisfied his justice because he poured out his judgment on his son in our place so that he could be merciful to us guilty sinners. 
So justice and righteousness. Kiss at the cross and all your unrighteousness, all your sin, all of my sin, all of that, Jesus bore it on the cross, paid the debt, justice has been satisfied so that we can have mercy. Isn't that great? It's good news. And then we are the people who get, understand how we can be both righteous and merciful, not falling off the horse into one ditch or the other. But I would say we probably all are inclined one way or the other. You might be more inclined to righteousness, mercy's a little harder. Or you might be inclined to be merciful, righteousness is a little harder. So, okay, you might need to lean a little bit in the direction that you're weak. You may need an extra measure of asking and seeking and knocking for the Lord Jesus to make you whole, to make you like him, both righteous and merciful. All right? So we made sure we understood what we were talking about when it comes to righteousness. We also need to just make sure we don't assume definitions here under mercy. You know, throw this word around all the time, but do we know what it means, what we're talking about? So what does it mean to be merciful? So mercy is what is shown when a loving heart encounters miserable helplessness and need. Okay, it's a response to need. Usually meeting need in someone who's not worthy of that kindness, that help, that love. So a couple of definitions here. Um, One from Sam Storms, one from Thomas Watson. Mercy is kindness and generosity and loving sacrifice on behalf of the wretched and unworthy. Thomas Watson, mercifulness is, I love this one, a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. So you can think of the Good Samaritan showing mercy to that man in need. But I think one of the best illustrations is one from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 18. It's a parable he told. So flip ahead to Matthew 18. Take a look at this parable of the unmerciful servant. So beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay? We don't really exchange in talents these days. Um, This is not, you know, America's got talent or whatever. This is a talent, a monetary measurement. Okay? A talent would be equivalent to 20 years' wages. So do the math. 10,000 times 20. Come on, somebody, make sure. How many years? Somebody yell it out there. 200,000. You going to be able to pay that off? 
No. So it's this astronomical, infinite. This is eternal debtor's prison, right? Okay. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. He's asking for mercy. And then verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. For a blue-collar worker, a denarii a day. That was your wage. So this is like three months. So this is not pennies, but compared to 10,000 talents, this is nothing. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Sounds familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this helps us know what mercy is and what it means. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So this is how merciful God has been to us and this is what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. A follower of Jesus is a merciful disciple. So we do need to ask the question. Let's just make sure we're clear on this. Does this beatitude state that we have to be merciful enough in order to earn God's mercy? Okay, I mean, look at it there. It can be, you know, kind of throw you off a little bit. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Like, I've got to be merciful enough in order to receive mercy. Does that mean that God's mercy is contingent on mine? Well, if you've been here in previous weeks, you've got to remember who he's addressing here. He's addressing his disciples. Okay, these are not entrance requirements for how to get into the kingdom. These are the ethics of the kingdom. It's what must characterize the citizens of this king and his kingdom. So if you and I, if we're not merciful, if we're like that guy choking the brother for a hundred genarii, how can we have received mercy? Those who have received mercy are merciful, and they are the only ones who will receive it in the end. The merciless will most certainly not receive mercy. So the only kind of people who will ultimately be shown mercy on the last day are those who have received the mercy of God for the undeserving and extended, not perfectly, but genuinely, sincerely, mercy to their brothers and sisters who've sinned against them. So 
Thomas Watson, again, he says this, When the sun of righteousness once shines with beams of grace upon the soul, then it melts in mercy and tenderness. You must first be a new man before a merciful man. So the point is, we don't earn God's mercy by being merciful enough. We need to receive his mercy first, and as evidence that we have, we are merciful to others. Blessed are you. You've been blessed. You've been, you've been graced. You've been given mercy, obviously, because you are merciful. And those are the kind of people at the end who will receive mercy. Choking fellow servants over lesser debts is wicked. So in light of the 10,000 talents, we can and must forgive the 100 denarii debt. Okay? So the point is not that we have to be merciful enough in order to earn God's mercy. Not at all. This is the characteristics of disciples of Jesus, citizens in his kingdom. And so if you desire, even if you struggle at times, Lord, help me to forgive. Help me to be merciful to this person. I want to you know, exact a pound of flesh. If you want to do this, if you seek to do this, if you are doing this, congratulations. Blessed are you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if you're struggling to forgive or be merciful, what can you do? You can focus on the 10,000 talents. And it will enable you with the 100 denarii. So this is a call to live out this kingdom ethic. Okay? It is radical, and it is desperately needed in our world today, isn't it? I mean, our world is starving for mercy. The media is merciless. Social media is merciless. I, I saw some stuff on Twitter last night. I'm like, are you kidding me? Th these, are, these are Christians just absolutely going at each other. I'm like... Two minutes was enough for me. Like, you don't have enough to do. I don't know. But I can't believe how you're speaking to each other. It's like people just delight in skewering, attacking, and punishing one another. It's easy for people to just delight in the downfall of others. We, we can feed on revenge like it's some, you know, delicious dish. Kids at school. Classmates can be merciless. Yes? I mean, I remember it. I got bullied, made fun of. Colleagues at work can be merciless. So we can either just fight fire with fire, we can just give it right back, or we can sometimes just kind of run and hide, insulate ourselves. You know, and the needs of others, we just don't want to be bothered, just avoid it. The church should be a refuge and a countercultural community of honor and kindness and mercy. And yet, the church can be one of the most merciless places of all. Like, let's not let that be the case here. We represent Jesus Christ in Wilmington. 
So our city doesn't need more religious people. Certainly not more religious people who sit up on their perch and complain and criticize the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you know, and like this attitude. Our city needs more mercy. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want your going through the motions. I want your heart and I want you to extend mercy to others. You need it, and so do they. Or in the book of Micah, many of us are familiar with this verse. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Or those verses at the end of the scripture reading that Miriam read. So speak, listen to this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you want God to judge you without mercy? No. (laughs) We need a lot of mercy. So let's not judge others without mercy. So, I mean, what, what's going on if we are not merciful? Because I think we, we wrestle with this every day, right? We're spring-loaded to be, you know, just wanting to get right back at somebody, whether verbally or just they cut you off in the car. I'm, I'm just ridiculous sometimes on the road, like a little childish nine-year-old. You know, somebody, it's like my pride rises up and I'm like, what am I doing? What in the world am I doing? Like, I'm offended because this person... Grow up, Chris. What is going on in us when we're not merciful? Now, there may be situations where mercy is not the right response because it's enabling. Okay, there's a point where it's no longer merciful to be merciful. But usually we're not merciful because we think too highly of ourselves. We're out of touch with reality, with our poverty of spirit and our need. See, if we're poor in spirit, the first beatitude, recognizing, feeling our spiritual bankruptcy, and if we're mourning that sin and the sin in the world around us, and if that lowliness leads us to realize what we deserve, it just drives away any sense of entitlement, rights orientation, it's driven away. Do you see how poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness and hunger and thirst for righteousness sets you up to be merciful? You see, there's like a progression in the Sermon on the Mount. So if we're lacking mercy, we're not loving mercy, then we need to go back to the first four Beatitudes and get clued back into reality. Oh, wait a second. Who do I think I am? As if I don't need a ton of mercy. As if... I was deserving. I'm not deserving. It's called mercy for a reason. So, are you impatient, hard-nosed, dismissive, hypercritical of the strugglers and the doubters and the failures and the rebels? Well, good thing God hasn't dealt with you that way. Is your problem... Not so much cruelty or harshness, but indifference to that misery and need. Just don't want to be bothered. 
Well, aren't you glad that God wasn't indifferent to your plight? To my plight? That means, do you see? The 10,000 talents, we need to go back to the 10,000 talents. And it will enable us to forgive the 100 denarii. We need to go back to the spiritual poverty and it'll enable us to be merciful. So let's never forget the infinitely rich mercy that's been bestowed on us and let's be willing and generous in dispensing that mercy in this merciless world. Finally, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Okay. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We might be inclined to think, I know for a long time I thought it was, you know, well, this must be like sexual purity. Well, that would be included. But this purity is, is a singleness. Your focus is single. It's pure. It's simple. There's a unity, a oneness, a wholeness to who you are. It means you're not divided you're not trying to have your foot in the world and your foot in the kingdom. You know, have your cake and eat it too, something like that. It means you're not hip- hypocritical, which is also like a divided, you know, you put up this front, but this is really the reality. There's sincerity and authenticity and wholeness. Okay, so I, I don't imagine I'd have to work too hard to convince us that we need this, <laughs> Right? We all probably know how, yeah, we're just, we just don't have it all together, do we? <laughs> we? We want to be integrated and whole. We want to be real, don't we? I mean, I remember hearing this one old season pastor who was asking, asked, asked the question, like, what are some of the greatest lessons you've learned in all these years of ministry? And he, he gave two answers, and one of them that I remember was, People are really as bad as the Bible says they are. Now, I was walking last night, you know, like I do Saturday nights in the neighborhood and praying, and I just was overwhelmed, and partially because some of my own stupid sin kicked up yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday, every day, but yesterday. And it's just like, this world is so full. I am so full of sin. This world is so full of sin. I mean, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we're going to have to come to terms with what's in our hearts. This is the source of our problems, right here, inside, okay? We are the source of our biggest problems. Our heart is the biggest problem. Thankfully, God loves this world with his whole heart. And he gave his son willingly if he did not spare his only son, but willingly, wholeheartedly gave him up for us all. And he did it to win back our divided, messed up, messy, hypocritical hearts, to make us whole again, to win our whole hearts so that we would love him with all of our heart. I mean, isn't that what you want? If that's what you want, congratulations. God has been so kind and merciful and gracious to you. If you want to be pure in heart, you're going to see God. So I've told this story before, but it was years ago, and it's worth repeating. So I had this seminary professor named Dr. Willem van Gemmeren. He was from the Netherlands, and it was hilarious hearing him with this Netherland accent speaking in Hebrew um, sometimes. But anyway, 
So we were going through the Psalms, and he's given us this little devotional on Psalm 119, 1 and 2. Is that, did I give you a slide for that, Chad? Yeah, there it is. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. In Hebrew, the word is tamim. Who walk in the law of the Lord, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. He says, what is tamim? You know? And he says, an apple is an apple is an apple. What in the world are you talking about? So the point is, anywhere you cut that apple, what are you going to get? Apple. It's whole. It's integrated. You don't cut in and get gummy worm. Well, you might get a worm, but like, you, you know, you don't cut into it and get potato. So blamelessness is not sinless perfection. It's unity and authenticity all the way through. Tamim, blamelessness, seek him with their whole heart. There's unity. There's, there's this single focus. Everything's integrated, and that desire is sincere and authentic. It's the opposite of double-mindedness and hypocrisy, which is why in James 4, 8, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Isn't that interesting? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You need to be pure of heart. And double-mindedness is the opposite of that. So no wonder Jesus started out in 417. We looked at this in previous weeks. It orients us as we head into the Sermon on the Mount. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're going to need to change. I'm going to need to change. So the question is, what do we want? What do we love with all of our heart? What's our one thing? What do you think about when your mind is in idle, like neutral? D.A. Carson, one of my seminary professors, asked some searching questions. He says, how much sympathy do you have for deception, no matter how skillful? For shady humor, no matter how funny? To what do you pay consistent allegiance? What do you want more than anything else? What and whom do you love? And then these two questions, let them sink in. To what extent are your actions and words accurate reflections of what is in your heart? To what extent do your actions and words constitute a cover-up for what is in your heart? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to change. But this is good news. This is good news. Repentance is turning on the flow of mercy and grace into our lives. Oh, it's not right. I'm not right in here. Change me. And he gives grace to do just that. And if we have a desire to be unified and whole and single-minded and wholehearted in following Jesus, Congratulations, where did that come from? It came from God's grace and his love and his mercy. You've been blessed. Now listen, purity of heart is not perfection, okay? It's being wholehearted and it's like really sincerely wanting God. 
wanting to please him, wanting to trust him. So actually, the pure in heart are going to mourn their sin. It's not that they're gonna, not going to have any. The pure in heart are going to make war with impurity and dividedness in heart. They're going to cry out, Oh, make me whole. I want to seek you with my whole heart. I hate how divided I can be. That is an expression of the unity and sincerity of heart if that is the cry of your heart. So the purity that Jesus is after is not just like this external whitewash thing. It's not just niceness or civility. He wants to change us from the inside out, make us new. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. Like C.S. Lewis said, he claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area of our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There is no bargaining with him. And you know what? Good thing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So no half-heartedness in, or indifference or lukewarmness. No half-heartedness of dividedness or two-timing. Let's love God with all of our heart. Purity of heart means that God owns our loves. Doesn't mean perfection. Doesn't mean we won't wrestle with inconsistency. It means that we're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to keep up a facade. When we see inconsistency in ourselves, dividedness in ourselves, we mourn it. And we hunger for it to be made right, to be made whole. We're honest with ourselves and with God and with one another. So heart-level righteousness is what Jesus is after here, not merely external rule-keeping. Purity of heart is what leads to purity of life. The heart is the command center of the person, which is why the Proverbs say it's so important to guard your heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, Proverbs 4.23, for from it flow the springs of life. If you got poison in the spring, the poison spreads to all the streams. So how can we be made pure like this? I don't want to oversimplify it, but can I just say this? Ask for it. I mean, are you convicted? I am. Ask for it. Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I think God wants to answer that prayer. Let's repent of our dividedness, our hypocrisy, our insincerity. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly. Sam Storms again says this, God's reason for commanding purity of heart isn't because he wants to deprive us of the pleasures of impurity. It isn't that God is a killjoy, a celestial sourpuss who lives in fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. God's motive is his loving desire to impart to us a pleasure and joy and happiness that, is, that far exceed both in depth and duration anything that impurity could ever produce. And guess what that is? Him. Seeing him. Having him. He's the greatest treasure and pleasure we will ever experience. And we can see him by faith now. Lord, show me your glory. 
We all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold him and adore him, we become like him from one degree of glory to the next. And then one day, like it says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, being glorified. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him fully purified, glorified, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the day is coming. If you want to see God, if you love God and you want to love him wholeheartedly, congratulations. God has been so kind and merciful and gracious to you. If you came in here this morning and you weren't a Christian, and you want to be a Christian, you can ask him. He can give you a new heart on the spot, and all of these promises are yours. Ask for it. Salvation is a gift. And one day, we will see God. Listen to Revelation 22, 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed. No more curse. Everything's right with the world when Jesus returns. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, implying ownership, sweet ownership. I belong to God. I am home in the home of righteousness forever. Everything is right. I am totally satisfied. The pure in heart will see God, and those who see God will be completely and utterly purified and made like him. So as the worship team comes up to sing one final song, I have one more quote from a guy named John Flavel, and then we're going to sing Come Thou Fount, which is fitting. He said, The vision of God in heaven will be a fully satisfying vision. God will then be all in all. The blessed soul will feel itself blessed, filled, satisfied in every part. Ah, what a happiness is here to look and love, to drink and sing and drink again at the fountainhead of the highest glory. So God wants not external, moralistic, you know, whitewash religion. He wants our hearts. So let's cry out now together. Come, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune this heart, this impure, often divided, merciless heart to sing your grace. Let's pray. Oh God, we are prone to wander. We feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's our heart. Take it and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Amen.